How many of you would say spring is your favorite time of year? Anybody? Yeah, it's spring. How about fall? Do we have fall folks? Yeah, it, we like those seasons, especially in Florida, because it's not so hot. And so uh, spring has come again, which means that it's time to celebrate Easter. I never have been able to quite figure out how they determine the date of Easter. I, I've, I've read about it. People have explained it. I just can never remember how to explain it to others. But I know it always comes in the spring. And that's important because the message of Easter uh, is modeled in spring. That spring is when things come back to life. Things that have died in the winter, maybe not in Florida, but in other parts of the country where things actually die during winter, they come back in spring. You see new life that springs forth and it gives us hope and it, it sort of satisfies a longing inside of all of us. Don't we all have that longing for a, a fresh start and a new beginning? Um, that's why we like babies so much. They're so innocent and there's so much hope uh, for them. Unless you're waking up with them in the middle of the night, then maybe not. But otherwise, we look at things of spring and new life and they give us hope because it speaks to a longing inside of our hearts for a new start and a fresh beginning. Uh, one of the things that we do at Easter time is uh, we take these objects, which this is an what? An egg, an Easter egg specifically because it's been boiled and colored. And so if you've ever looked in the Bible to try to find the Easter bunny and the egg, you're probably disappointed. You'll look a long time. It's not in there. Um, But because really the egg has become a symbol of new life, something new that is coming. And it's not just... Uh, what we as Christians celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus, but really the whole world kind of uh, looks at spring and there are all kinds of festivals that celebrate new life. The thing about an egg is that while it is new life, it comes from an old chicken. Uh, I mean, it comes from a chicken that's already existed. And that chicken came from an egg, which also came from a chicken, right? And that chicken came from an egg that came from a chicken. You get the point. Just trying to make sure you're awake. So, so there's this idea that, that while life is new, it finds its origin in life that has preceded it. Something new comes out of it. Um, scientists and biologists who study and teach about the theory of evolution talk about evolution um, in a way that, that, that they say creatures and, and species adapt to their environment to address the threats and dangers so that their species can endure longer. So they adapt in order to meet the challenges that they face. And I started thinking about that in terms of the theory of evolution and and how it affects us as humans today because we as a species face some real serious threats and challenges to the survival of our species, don't we? But the challenges aren't external anymore. Uh, We pretty much conquered all the external challenges. All the challenges are internal. They're, in, they're, they're things that we have created. So, so things like war, war and terrorism and violence between people and school shootings and human trafficking and greed, all these things that threaten us as a society. And we ask ourselves, at what point does humanity, does humanity adapt to address those problems? If those are the greatest challenges and threats that we face as a species, when do we adapt as people to overcome those challenges so that we could survive. There was a, a fella who uh, lived uh, in the early 1900s by the name of C.S. Lewis. He was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge, which means that he was really smart. And, and I want to read to you something that he said. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. People often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man, will happen. But in the Christian view, it has happened already. 
In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and the new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. Now think about what Lewis is saying here, that the new the, the, the answer to the problem, the deepest problem of the human race has already been resolved. That God himself resolved it as he took on flesh and came to dwell among us. And we know that person by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A real person who lived in history, lived in time. And he taught and he lived uh, what Christians believe was a sinless, perfect life. And then he died a real death in history and in time. He was convicted by the Roman government and sentenced to death on a cross. And Christians believe that because of his death on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. Everything that we've done wrong can be forgiven. Now, I don't know what you think about sin, but even if you don't define sin the way I define sin, we all agree that we're not perfect, right? Everybody agrees that we don't live up to even our own moral standards. And so God's solution, God's answer to overcoming the greatest problem that faces mankind was the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But if Jesus' death on the cross meant something for us 2,000 years later, uh, then we have, to be- we have to believe something else happened. That it wasn't enough that Jesus would just die, but three days later, God raised him from the dead, which is an amazing claim, maybe even a ridiculous claim for some of you who are here today who may be skeptics, that dead people don't come back to life. But isn't it true that we never expect what it is that happens as we begin to adapt and change? And God's plan always defies our expectation. And so these claims require that we research and study and understand, did this really happen? So it's important for you to know that after Jesus came back to life, there were more than 500 people who witnessed him, who saw him. Some of them had been believers in Jesus before his death, but others had not. And they came to believe because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And these 500 people began to tell everybody they knew in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area that, hey, Jesus is alive. One of those witnesses was one of his disciples, somebody who had followed him through the course of his ministry by the name of John. And John, like several other people, wrote down a story of the life of Jesus and what he did, what he accomplished, what he taught. And and we find that in the gospel of John, we find this account. It's one witness, one of the 500, maybe even more people who saw Jesus, saw him raised from the dead, and they wrote the story down. When John wrote down his story of the resurrection, and he began to tell us tell all people what it was that Jesus had done. He said, listen, I'm going, to give, I'm going to show you seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus performed. He did many, many more, but I'm going to pick seven, and I'm going to show you these seven signs in, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing that, that you might have eternal life, that you can overcome the greatest challenge we face as people, and that's the challenge of death. So John marked out these seven Miracles. Now, seven is an important number because it's, it's, a, it's a number in the Bible and throughout all of culture, really, that signifies the perfection of creation. When God created the world, he created the world in seven days. Seven days, and he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Seven days in our calendar week. We build our whole calendar around seven. There are seven colors in the rainbow. And in a musical scale, there are... seven notes in a musical scale. And so John began to mark out these seven things, and it was important, it was important to him to say that it, there were seven signs that point to us, that point us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And 
He got to the seventh miracle, and it was really spectacular. Jesus' friend Lazarus had died, and he had been dead for four days by the time Jesus shows up, and Jesus raises him from the dead. And everybody is astounded. Even Jesus' enemies can't believe it. And so they begin to plot Jesus' death at that point. And so Lazarus is alive, and it's the seventh sign. But there's a problem. Lazarus was raised back to life, and Lazarus was going to die again. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I wonder if anybody asked Lazarus if he was glad that Jesus brought him back to life. I mean, especially when he realized that, you mean i got to go through that again? I'm going to have to die again? And, And if you think about all the miracles that Jesus performed, the sixth miracle was Jesus healing a blind man. Guess what would happen to that blind man eventually? He would die. As would all of the people who were recipients of the miracles that Jesus performed. As were all of the people who were witnesses to the life and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. They would all die again. And here's why that's important for us. Because today, many of you who are here, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever your worldview is, you might not believe anything at all. But I, can, I know something about you is true. If you were to get a report that said that you or someone you loved had a terminal illness, you would pray. You would pray, and you would ask some force to do something miraculous, that you needed some kind of miracle, your loved one needed some kind of miracle, and you would pray, Lord, bring the miracle, and you wouldn't care what form it took. So if God miraculously healed you or your loved one, or if God used medicine or treatment or therapy or surgery or rehab, whatever it was, whatever form the miracle comes, we pray for miracles, and then people experience a miracle, and we are so grateful But we got a problem. We still die. So even with a miracle that may prolong our life, we still have to face this challenge of death. And so Jesus would go around doing these miracles on the the Sabbath day, the seventh day, the sacred day, the day that God said, you're to rest on this day and do no work. And he made all of the religious leaders upset with him because he was constantly performing miracles on the seventh day. But Jesus was sending a message. That it is in the completion, it is in what comes next that God will make the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see and even raise the dead to life. But we still face a problem. And, And here's the problem. That despite the miracles, despite the prayers, like a musical scale, we get to the seventh and we're waiting for something else. And so God, in his divine power and authority, And John, in his wisdom of writing down this, showed us an eighth miracle. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me today to John chapter 20 as we read this ultimate miracle, this miracle that made all the other miracles uh, powerful and gave them meaning. John chapter 20, we'll be looking at this together. John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in front of you. And uh, you can feel free to take that as a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'll also put it on the screens John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Now, it was Jewish custom that there was no work done, as we've already said, on the Sabbath. And so Jesus was crucified and died on Friday. And at sunset, they had to hurry and rush to get his body in the tomb. 
because they couldn't do any more work. So Mary and the women waited and were waiting until Sunday morning, which for the Jews would be the first day of the week, the Sabbath was over, to go back and to finish preparing the body for burial. So Mary Magdalene had waited. She'd come early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, on this first day of the week, if you are somebody who is familiar with Jewish traditions, you know that Jewish people still celebrate the Sabbath on sunset at Friday night, and Saturday is the Sabbath. And Christians acknowledge that is the Sabbath. So you think, well, why do we worship then on Sunday? Because all of Jesus' appearances, in the Gospel of John particularly, happened on the first day of the week. Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, not Monday. But Sunday, and so the church gathers every Sunday to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. Not just one day a year, but every Sunday of the year that Jesus is alive. So Mary went to the tomb. She gets there, and the tomb is empty. So she runs back, and she tells the disciples, Hey, guys, I went to go and to prepare the body for burial, and somebody has taken the body. The body was gone. Two of the disciples, Peter and John, John who was writing this account for us, ran back to the tomb with Mary. And they looked in the tomb, and sure enough, there was no body. And so they went back to the other disciples to talk to them, to try to figure out what had happened. Meanwhile, Mary was left alone at the tomb. And we read in verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And now you might read that and think, well, that's strange. How could she not know that it was Jesus? And there's been a lot of speculation. Commentators have written a lot about this. I think the simple explanation is just this. If you go to the cemetery, you're not expecting to see the person who's been buried. And if her eyes are covered in tears, if she's crying, she's not seeing clearly. And the last person she expected would be Jesus. And so she didn't know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, he's just playing with her now. I mean, I've got to imagine that Jesus has got a little smile on his face. I mean, whom are you seeking? He knows who she's seeking. But, but he's asking this question. Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, listen, this is very interesting. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus is alive. And I want to share with you this morning an important similarity between Jesus and Lazarus' resurrections. Because both were raised to a physical existence. Their dead corpses were brought back to life. Lazarus, in chapter 12, we find that Lazarus was present at a banquet, at a feast... Everybody had heard about Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. They had all gathered around. They ate with Lazarus. People talked to Lazarus. There were even religious leaders trying to kill Lazarus because Jesus had raised him from the dead. Lazarus was physically alive, but so was Jesus. 
In John's account, we see Jesus eat and drink in every resurrection appearance. He's fixing breakfast for the guys on the beach. He's serving the Lord's Supper to two unsuspecting disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. He even invites the Apostle Thomas to take his fingers and place them in the nail holes and see that he was alive. He was more than just a spiritual being. He was physically resurrected. You see, some people talk about resurrection just like it's a spiritual reality, without comment or acknowledging its physical reality. But this is important for you to understand today. God is redeeming all things. He is redeeming everything. When God created the heaven and the earth, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he said, it is very good. And God is working to redeem everything, even our bodies. This is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? God is doing more than giving us some spiritual eternal existence. He has promised resurrection, a defeat of death for all times. See, people use the word resurrection to simply mean some sort of immortality, immortal spiritual existence. But listen, this is so important. Jesus' resurrected body is immortal, but it's not immaterial. Jesus' body was raised from the dead, and if it wasn't, then none of the other claims of Christianity can be true and nor do they matter. And so if you're a thinking person, you might ask yourself, well, then where is Jesus' body now? Where is he today? And the scripture tells us in Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father with his body. He is there in bodily presence with the Father. Listen to this. This is amazing. That God would take on flesh and send Jesus into the world from heaven to earth so that he might inhabit our space. But catch this. Jesus was raised from the dead. His body ascended from earth back to heaven to make a way for all of humanity to follow him there. That's the message of Easter. It's about something more than just the fact that one man was raised from the dead. He was, the scripture says, the first fruits among creation. That he was the first to be raised from the dead, but he would not be the last. And it wouldn't be like Lazarus. It would be an eternal resurrection in the presence of God forever. That's the hope of Christianity. That's the longing of all mankind. And I believe that's why Jesus told Mary, do not cling to me. Because I believe he was gently correcting Mary's hope that Jesus, like Lazarus, had been raised and returned to her and the disciples so that life could just get back to normal. Because isn't that what we always want? We're always seeking this thing that we call normal, and I don't even know what it is. What is normal? What does it mean to get back to normal? Everything is constantly changing. Here's the thing. Humans' perspective on life and death is so limited. And so we as humans always assume that the life as we know it is preferable to the life that is to come. And so Mary had no way of understanding what it was that happened. That Lazarus had been returned. He had been raised back to life. But Lazarus was only going to die again. But what Jesus was coming to offer, what Jesus' resurrection meant, was something more significant than that. That Jesus would never die again. Mary wanted to hold on to Jesus, much like Mary and Martha wanted to hold on to Lazarus. But Jesus wanted her to understand that there is something better than being resuscitated. And it's called resurrection. And I have come. That those who might believe in me might be resurrected. That's the promise that Jesus had for Mary that day. So she says, don't hold on to me. 
Just like when Lazarus had been raised from the dead and came out in his grave clothes, Jesus commanded those witnesses, said, strip off the grave clothes and set him free. Let him go. How often, church, do we long for the return of our dead loved ones? How often do we pray for the kind of miracles we read about in the Bible? God, if you would only, if you would only do a miracle, it's beyond all hope. Would you, could you possibly, we know you did it in the New Testament, would you do it again? But all we're wanting to do is to hold on to them for just a little while longer because eventually they will just die. But Jesus' invitation for us to believe is to let go. It's an invitation to believe that resurrection is better than resuscitation, that life after life after death is the ultimate victory. And that's what was awaiting for Lazarus and for you and for me. That Jesus, this new kind of human, God made flesh, would show us and lead us to the kind of life that we're longing for, that our soul longs for. That's what it meant when Jesus was raised from the dead. Look what Mary did, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And this has been the witness of the church for 2,000 years. We gather and we say, we have seen the Lord. In those early days, there were people there who had physically seen him. And they would go about Jerusalem and and eventually through all the ancient world saying, Jesus is alive. We saw him. We touched him. We ate a meal with him. And down through the ages, as those original witnesses died, the message of the church continued from one generation to another. And today, there are witnesses all around you who say, I might have never seen with my physical eyes the body of Jesus, but I have experienced new life, resurrected life. I've been changed. I was dead and I'm alive. I was blind and now I see this is the promise of Easter this is what it is that God has done for us we have seen what it looks like to be fully and eternally alive we have seen to paraphrase C.S. Lewis the next step of the evolution of mankind so what would this mean for you if you're here today and uh, maybe you responded to somebody's Easter invitation and, and you came, but you don't know what you believe about all this. Let me just ask you, just, just for a moment, maybe suspend your own, your own reason and your own logic and your own thinking for just a moment. What would it mean to you if it were true? If you could know beyond any shadow of a doubt, in fact, that God did take on flesh, that he did die for your sins, and that he was raised from the dead, what would it mean for you? There have been skeptics throughout history who have tried to disprove Christianity. One of them is a fellow by the name of Josh McDowell, a smart man, who figured, you know what, if I could disprove the reliability of the Bible, then the rest of Christianity would collapse because the only witness that we have to these stories finds that find themselves in the scriptures. So he set out on a mission. Listen to what Josh McDowell said. I spent months in research. I even dropped out of school for a time to study in the historical, historically rich libraries of Europe, and I found evidence. Evidence in abundance. Evidence I would not have believed had I not seen it with my own eyes. Finally, I could come to only one conclusion. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the Old and New Testament documents were some of the most reliable, reliably written in all of antiquity. If one discards the Bible as unreliably historically, then he or she must discard all of the literature of antiquity. No other document has as much evidence to confirm its reliability as the Bible. And Josh McDowell went from being one who tried to disprove to being one of the strongest, uh, strongest evangelists and apologists of our day. But there was another person. There was uh, a man by the name of Lee Strobel, 
And Lee Strobel was a legal correspondent for the Chicago Sun-Times. And he and his wife and their family were happily atheists. They lived uh, the American dream. And everything was going along just fine until somebody shared with Lee Strobel's wife the message of the gospel. And she began to go to church. And she began to believe that Jesus was more than just a carpenter. That the promises of God had been fulfilled in Jesus. And she found hope in Christ. She put her faith in him. And their marriage started falling apart. Because now she's a believer and he's an atheist and he doesn't want her to be a believer. And so Lee Strobel set out. He said, I know how to research things. I know how to study. I know how to make an argument. So he began to study and to try to disprove the claims of Christianity. And listen to what Lee Strobel said. It didn't take long for me to conclude that the truth or falsity of all world religions and the ultimate meaning of life itself comes down to just one key issue. Did Jesus or did he not return from the dead? The answer to that fundamental question would settle everything. In short, if the resurrection is false, then Christianity is refuted. But if it is true, then regardless of what any world religion teaches, Jesus is the one and only Son of God, and everything has changed. And it changed for Lee Strobel, somebody who set out to disprove Christianity and through his own investigation became a believer and today is a pastor and one of the strongest apologists we have for the Christian faith. So, If you're skeptical, you might be saying, well, sure. There's two examples of people who went from not believing to believing, and of course they would say those things. Well, let me share with you another person, uh, someone that uh, maybe some of you know, or you you probably won't admit it if you do know who it is. His name is Hugh Hefner. (laughs) And Hugh Hefner is not a Christian. He's not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. But an interviewer uh, one time asked Hugh Hefner about his religious beliefs and specifically asked Hugh Hefner if he believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And I want you to listen to what Hugh Hefner said. Because if you're here today and you're not a believer, I, I suspect that this is also the longing of your heart. Listen to what he said. If one had any real evidence that indeed Jesus did return from the dead then that is the beginning of a dropping of a series of dominoes that takes us to all kinds of wonderful things. It assures an afterlife and all kinds of things that we would all hope are true. Here's the good news. It is true. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he is alive, and it can have meaning for you today. Let me share with you three things that the resurrection could mean for you right here, right now, today. It's this. First, you no longer need to fear judgment for your sin because it's been forgiven. That because Jesus lived a perfect life and died as the perfect sacrifice, every sin that you've committed, no matter how bad you might think it is, can be forgiven. And you do not have to live with shame and guilt and regret anymore because God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. But it means even more than that. You no longer have to worry about death because it's been defeated. You see, you might get through a health scare, a loved one you have might get through a health scare, but we know what is inevitable for all of us. Death comes to all of us, but you do not have to fear death because Jesus has conquered the grave. And if you place your faith in him, the promise is that you will live with God for an eternity and he will raise you from the dead. You no longer have to fear death. It's been defeated. You no longer have to fear judgment of sin because it's been forgiven. And you no longer need to worry about your life or your future because it's been secured. 
Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, Why do you worry about your body, what you'll eat or drink, or, your, or what you'll wear? Why do you worry about these things? Look how God takes care of the grass of the field and the birds of the air. You are valuable to him. If he would send his own son to die for you, why wouldn't he also provide and care for you and meet your needs? You don't have to worry about life in this life. Your future has been secured. And so as we come to the conclusion of another Easter Sunday, I just want to ask you, what do you need to do in response to the claims of the resurrection? I think you have four options here today. All of us fall in one of these four categories when we think about the options. The first one is this, that maybe you would say, I need to investigate this for myself. I mean, like Lee Strobel or, uh, or like Josh McDowell, I need to study this. I need to research this. I, I mean, if the claims of Christianity were true, wouldn't it be worth whatever effort you would need to put into finding out if they're true? Wouldn't it be worth that effort? A little bit of time on your part here to guarantee an eternity if it is true? Maybe you need to claim, ex- explore these claims on your own. On the back of your bulletin this morning, at the bottom of the sermon notes, there are some resources listed there. You can get those books at any of your favorite book distributors. I would challenge you, read those books. Study for yourself. Read other books. Investigate. So maybe some of you are here today and you say, I need to investigate those claims on my own. Maybe some of you are ready to take the next step. Maybe some of you would say, I've got questions. I don't understand it all. And so what you need to do is you need to explore with other believers You need to get together with other people where you feel safe enough to ask questions. And as a church, we want to create small group environments where you can get together with other believers and not be ashamed to ask questions and hear answers and talk about doubts and fears and and hear the stories of other people who have placed their faith in Jesus. We would invite you next Sunday to join us right after our worship service. We'll we'll go back to one service next Sunday at 11 o'clock. We'd love for you to come and stay for lunch. We'll have a casual conversation around tables. You can learn more about what we believe about our church. And you might even want to be a part of Starting Point where you can explore faith and experience community. Or you might want to come to one of our grow groups. But maybe you're in the second group and you need to explore the possibilities, the truth of the resurrection with some other believers. But maybe, for some of you today, maybe you're here and you're in a third group. A third group that says, I'm ready. I I don't have all the answers yet, but I know there's a longing in my heart. I know there's something inside of me that is dead and I'm praying that Jesus Christ can raise it back to life. And the good news for you today is that you can have that right here, right now. In just a little bit, we're gonna have an invitation and I'm gonna invite everyone to stand and we're gonna sing a song. And I'm gonna invite you, if if maybe today you would just like to come down and have somebody pray with you or for you, if today you're ready to say, you know what, I believe that Jesus is alive and I believe it makes all the difference in the world. Maybe you're in that third group but there's a fourth group of us here today this is a group I'm in and I suspect it's the group many of you are in and and we have a responsibility in this fourth group like Mary to leave from this place and proclaim Jesus is alive he's alive I've seen him I've experienced him and so like Mary maybe today some of you would say I'm in the fourth group so a I'm in a group and I need to investigate this on my own. B, I'm in a group and I need to get with some other believers and ask some tough questions and listen and share my story and hear their story. C, I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to receive this gift of eternal life through Jesus today. Or D, I'm ready like Mary to go out and say, Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. I'm gonna invite you right now to bow your heads. And if everybody would bow your heads right now, and just give privacy to those who are around. Um, I just want to ask you this morning as we...
prepare and we sing this song, how many of you today, like me, would say, I'm in, I'm in the last category. I'm in the category like Mary. I need to leave here and I need to share the good news that Jesus is alive. Would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand and let us know. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Do you realize that if every one of us who just raised our hand, like Mary and like those early disciples and like that early crowd of 500 witnesses, went out of here and testified to what we knew to be true, we could see a city transform and change. We could see families change, marriages saved, people break addictions if we would just do that. Now let me ask you another question. Everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many of you today would say, I'm ready right now. I'm ready to receive this gift of eternal life provided through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection. How many of you today would say that's you? Today, you're ready. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you for that hand. Thank you. I'm going to invite you right now to join me in a prayer, a simple prayer. And it's not my words, uh, but it's the intent of your heart. And here's the prayer. Father, we come to you today and we admit that we're the walking dead, that we cannot overcome the biggest problem humanity faces, and that's our own sin. But we believe that Jesus Christ came and died so that we might be forgiven and that you raised him from the dead so that we might overcome sin, death, and the grave forever. And today I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I commit myself to follow after him for as long as the time that you would give me remains. And I pray this in Jesus' name.